This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing, and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the very latest news, tune in to your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White, and it's time for the News Roundup. A New York grand jury indicted former President Donald Trump yesterday that makes him the first former president to be charged with a crime. The indictment is the latest in District Attorney Alvin Bragg's investigation into hush money Trump's former attorney paid during the 2016 campaign. The indictment and specific charges are still sealed, and the DA's office said it has asked for Trump to surrender. So there's a lot to get into this hour. My guest in studio, Steve Clemens. He's editor-at-large at Semaphore. Welcome back, Steve. Good to be with you, Jen. Also with us is Joe Matthew, Washington correspondent at Bloomberg News, and he's the host of Bloomberg Radio's Sound On podcast. Joe, welcome to the show. Hey, Jen. Great to be here. And joining us from Ann Arbor, Zoe Clark. She's the political director at Michigan Radio and co-host of It's Just Politics. Zoe, it's great to have you. Great to be here, Jen. So let's say up front, there's a lot we don't know about the charges. But Steve, what do we know about this indictment right now? Well, we know that uh, Donald Trump is going to have to show up in a couple of days and he is going to be uh, essentially arrested and he is going to have to uh, give up some of his DNA. He's going to have a mug- mugshot taken, his fingerprints taken, and a legal process will begin. We don't know uh, because of the sealed uh, indictment what the various counts are, but we've learned through various news sources that there may be up to 30 of those. Uh, and we assume that they deal with hush money payments. Really, it's the cover-up of hush money payments because hush money payments themselves turn out not to be illegal. And 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 in terms of, um, you know, Basically, business deceit, if they're, uh, if if that's what you want to call it, that's a misdemeanor. the The issue at at hand is whether or not there is a more serious underlying crime, either with a, a, a election finance or some other crime that we haven't seen or know about, that uh, is driving the New York District Attorney uh, to take these actions. And so we'll we'll learn that in due course. Well, in a statement, Trump called the indictment, quote, political persecution and election interference at the highest level in history. He also accused Democrats of, quote, weaponizing our justice system to punish a political opponent who just so happens to be a president of the United United States. Again, he is the former president. And here's former Vice President Mike Pence speaking on CNN last night. I think the unprecedented indictment of a former president of the United States on a campaign finance issue is an outrage. And and it appears to, to millions of Americans to be nothing more than a political prosecution that's driven by a prosecutor who literally ran for office on a pledge to indict the former president. Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohen, was the one who actually made the payments in 2016 and served time for it. Cohen was also on CNN last night. This isn't about vindication. This is about accountability. This is about the adage that no one is above the law. This is also about that whatever laws that sent me to prison should send him to prison. We're all supposed to be looked at in the eyes of the law the same. 
right? Lady Justice wears the blindfold. It's not supposed to matter, you know, about your race, religion, creed, color, whether you're a former president or not. If you break the law, you have to be held accountable. We got this question from Will, who says, Michael Cohen was tried and convicted of crimes related to payments to keep Stormy Daniels quiet. So how is it possible that Cohen is guilty, but Trump is not? Joe, I mean, what are you hearing from Trump and his attorneys about why the former president shouldn't be charged if a crime was committed? Well, they'll tell you, and Mike Pence said this in that interview last night on CNN, that he was actually uh, sent to jail for lying to Congress, which really kind of confuses the matter. I talked this week with Lanny Davis, Michael Cohen's lawyer, who has a long history with presidents and the law. He represented Bill Clinton during the Monica Lewinsky scandal. And he said, Joe, if we had signed checks back then, if there were actual signed checks from a sitting president, as this case apparently has, that would have not only ended in impeachment, but conviction and removal from office. They see this as a real case, not the so-called zombie case that people have suggested that doesn't have the strength to bring an indictment. And the fact is, it may not be as great a case as we're seeing in Fulton County, Georgia, or what the special counsel here in Washington might be cooking up. But they think they've got real legal ground to stand on here. To your point, as as you first illustrated, this is the same offense that sent Michael Cohen to jail, that, that forced him to lose his license. And they believe that equally applied, that should apply to Donald Trump. Zoe, Trump is running for the 2024 GOP presidential nomination. What does this indictment mean for his campaign and the race overall? Right. I mean, you put it into context, though. Who who are you asking? Right. For Donald Trump supporters, uh, this to them is more of the same. I mean, you you read part of Trump's statement, but if you read it into it entirety, it is all about being a political witch hunt. Right. And and if you are a Donald Trump supporter and that is the prism that you are looking at this, this is more of the same. Uh, If you are a Democrat, you are looking at this as yet again, more of the same, but in a very different view. I thought what was so fascinating, right, is within just sort of hours, minutes, really, of this news coming out yesterday, uh, both sides were tweeting out, sending out the exact same New York Times headline about the indictment, but for two very different reasons, Mm -hmm. right? And I think this just goes back to show this dichotomy, this division that we're seeing, and it's going to continue to play out within the Republican Party itself during this presidential primary, but also between Republicans and Democrats in 2024. Well, some outlets are reporting that Trump will turn himself in on Tuesday. As rumors of the indictment spread in the last few weeks, Trump called for his supporters to protest his arrest. Steve, have we seen those protests emerge? I think we saw about 50 people show up in New York. Uh, It was fairly minor. Um, But as some observers have said, and and I think that that while the pinpoint of a protest um, and, and really the sense that maybe violence was being called for, um, that didn't seem to happen. But other observers have said the real concern that they have, and I've talked to folks in the FBI who've been on alert looking for political violence in other parts of the country um, that may not be the epicenter of where Donald Trump is going to be arraigned. And I think that that is you know, one of the underlying concerns of the moment. And in you know, contributing, honestly, to the toxicity, because I, I think, as we just heard, people are looking at the same facts, the same indictment, and feeling that gravity works differently depending on which side of the political aisle you may be. Well, well, Zoe, I want to come to you because 
Michigan is outside of the Beltway. I mean, what yeah. kind of reaction are you seeing in that state to this news? Yeah, I mean, as we've talked about before, Jen, Michigan has a new chair of the Michigan Republican Party just last month. Um, she herself is a conspiracy theorist. She is an election denier. She was endorsed by Trump. She tweeted yesterday, our government is increasingly being weaponized against citizens. Today it will be President Trump. Tomorrow it will be you. Um, so not surprising rhetoric here in this state. But to this idea of sort of rap- rallying the protests and the groups. I think that's absolutely right. Like, is it actually going to happen in New York? Or are we going to see outbursts, for instance, in places throughout the country? And I think that could also be an indicator of just how much support or disinterest that that some folks have in Donald Trump. And it's going to be interesting on Tuesday to see Are there groups that are coming out or is this a lot of smoke and little fire throughout the country? Um, Is Donald Trump overestimating at this point the ability to get folks out uh, in a way that we saw on January 6th? And and just to add one element to what Zoe just said, you know, about what may happen and unfold in New York. We've just seen a tweet from Marjorie Taylor Greene, of course, a representative Mm -hmm. in Congress, saying that she is now going to New York, whereas Mm -hmm. before she she was not. So um, with Marjorie Taylor Greene comes weather, and we will see weather around her there, and and potentially we'll see what form the protests take take when she shows. We got this question from Sandra who says, does the indictment in New York make it more difficult to indict Trump in Georgia? And again, this isn't the only investigation into the former president's conduct. The Georgia investigation looks into his efforts to influence the 2020 election results. There's also the Department of Justice, which is looking into the collection of classified documents found last summer. And the DOJ is looking into his role in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Joe, does this indictment have any impact on the Georgia case or any of the other investigations? No, it doesn't. And I and I would just, you know, when you squint your eyes and think about this, uh, looking ahead to the next couple of months, we could be in a world in which all three are being resolved at similar times. Imagine running for re-election as a former president with potentially three indictments against you. It's remarkable. Uh, And, you know, frankly, we thought Fulton County in Georgia was going to come out first. This is one that we've been waiting for for months now. So, you know, we're hearing any day is possible for Georgia. And it sure seems like the special counsel is moving quickly here in Washington. We're waiting for Mike Pence now to potentially testify. He's been he's been very successful in subpoenaing high level officials and getting them to talk. uh, And it's very difficult to avoid that. So, look, Donald Trump may have been raising money on this potential uh, outcome here when he predicted the indictment in New York. It'll be interesting to see if he can continue raising money and galvanizing support as these cases close in around him. But it is entirely possible he could be carrying all three at once. So this is a story we'll continue to follow as we learn more. A historic first for an indicted former president and a historic week of weather in various parts of the country. At least 21 people died in Mississippi as storms and a tornado tore across the state over the weekend. The toll was especially steep in Sharkey County in western Mississippi, where 13 people died. And in California, that state was hit with more rain, snow, gusty winds, and flooding. It's been hammered by more than 30 atmospheric rivers since November. More than 15% of the state is currently considered to be drought-free. That's according to the U.S. Drought Monitor. But that's not expected to last. Seasonal snowfalls topped 
700 inches at Mammoth Mountain Ski Resort, breaking a decade-long record. Coming up, another school shooting tears a community apart. Can President Joe Biden move the GOP on guns? We'll be back in just a moment. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics. With vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon. This message comes from NPR sponsor Carvana. With thousands of options under $20,000, plus customizable financing terms and down payments as low as $0 down, it's easy to find a car that fits your lifestyle. Visit Carvana.com or download the app today. Terms and conditions may apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people across your business, providing intelligent tools to help remove frustration and supercharge productivity. And all of that is built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Learn more at servicenow.com slash AI for people. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Let's go now to Nashville, where a 28-year-old shot and killed six people, including three children, at a private Christian elementary school on Monday. Here's how U.S. Senate Chaplain Barry Black opened the Senate floor Tuesday. Remind our lawmakers of the words of the British statesman Edmund Burke. All that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. Lord, deliver our senators from the paralysis of analysis that waits for the miraculous. That was U.S. Senate Chaplain Barry Black during the opening prayer on Tuesday. According to Education Week, it's the 13th school shooting just this year in America where someone has been killed or injured. Zoe, what do we know about the three adults and three children who were killed Monday? That they were at the Nashville Covenant School and that they were killed allegedly from a shooter, as you mentioned, who's 28 years old, was a former student at the school. The alleged shooter had allegedly bought uh, seven firearms, three of those, two of which were assault-style weapons, were used in the shooting. Um, And another statistic that the United States has now had more than 125 mass shootings now this year. And as you note, three children, nine-year-olds, and three adults were killed in Nashville. And those victims were Evelyn Dickhouse, Hallie Scruggs, William Kenney, all age nine, Cynthia Peak, Catherine Kuntz, and Mike Hill, all in their 60s. Zoe, Michigan is no stranger to school shootings. Three students were killed at Michigan State University last month, and the teen who killed four students at Oxford High School in 2021 pleaded guilty last fall. His parents have been charged with manslaughter for allowing him access to the gun. Michigan recently passed legislation in response to those shootings. What's included in this new legislation? Yeah, so either been passed or moving forward on safe storage laws 
on universal background checks and on so-called red flag laws. We should note, you know, for decades in Michigan, there wasn't movement towards gun safety. That is because Republicans were in charge of either both chambers or the executive branch. For the first time in 40 years, Democrats are are now in charge uh, in Lansing, the state capitol. And so there was yet another horrific shooting at Michigan State University, as you mentioned, last month. And Democrats quickly moved on these bills. Um, And what we should note is, although they weren't uh, strongly bipartisan by any terms, we have the data among voters here in Michigan. And these three bills, again, as as many folks will call them, common sense gun reform, background checks, flag, uh, red flag laws, safe storage laws, strongly supported by Democrats, but also Republicans here in Michigan. In fact, just a an interesting statistic, 91% of GOP primary voters support background checks in the state. 93% of GOP primary voters with a gun in their house support background checks. And this, again, is in a purple state of Michigan. Well, let's talk about the congressional response to the shooting. Republican Congressman Tim Burchett represents Tennessee's second district, which includes Knoxville. He spoke to reporters on the steps of the Capitol Tuesday. It's it's a horrible, horrible situation, and we're not going to fix it. Criminals are going to be criminals. And my daddy fought in the Second World War, fought in the Pacific, fought the Japanese. And he told me, he said, buddy, he said, if somebody wants to take you out and doesn't mind losing their life, there's not a whole heck of a lot you can do about it. So that's one perspective. But, Joe, how are other members of Congress reacting to the shooting? Well, I'll just add to that. He also went on to to tell the reporters that's why they homeschool uh, their Mm. child. But, uh, look, it's been very predictable. And I I think this has been a very difficult week uh, for activists who are trying to to get some progress to build on the legislation that was passed last year, the so-called red flag law, which was far from what progressives hoped to see. Uh, You know, it's just been a big yawn, to be perfectly honest with you, because Lawmakers have been through this so many times. They've heard the president have to talk to the American people so many times and call for some level of reform. And they know that within about a week, everyone will move on to another story. Uh, now, it's, it, it's not a pleasure to, to relay this to you. But while Democrats have, have said that they have very different views on this, they've called for passage of universal background checks. The president has called uh, for or to reinstate the assault weapons ban. We hear it from him every time he walks by a microphone. There's just no path. The Republican-led House uh, is not going to, to, to go near this right now, particularly with Speaker McCarthy uh, being in a very vulnerable position with a, with a very uh, divided caucus. It's just, you know, if they couldn't get it done last year with, when Democrats controlled both houses of Congress and the White House, they, they won't likely have a chance this year either. President Biden called on Congress to pass an assault weapons ban on after Monday's shooting. Nashville Mayor John Cooper also weighed in, calling for stricter gun laws. The Democrats spoke to CNN Tuesday morning. Now, in Tennessee, we've been rolling back gun laws and making them guns almost ubiquitous. But it makes guns first of mind when people are thinking about doing terrible things. And we've got to we've got to make that clearly uh, more difficult. We owe it to the parents. Everybody that's attending every vigil in Nashville feels that there needs to be a public response to this kind of tragedy. 
And Steve, yet there there is a public response. And as we heard Zoe cite some of the stats out of Michigan, some of that polling data, there just seems to be a, a grave disconnect around the policies around gun ownership and what Congress is willing to do and what the public says they're willing to support. Well, there is a gap. You know, I, I have a, a, a lot of time for Senator Chris Murphy, who wrote, uh, I think, probably the definitive book on America's relationship with guns, the gun industry, uh, the gun lobby, uh, and looking at why, despite what Zoe just shared, in which you have Republican support. We saw this in a way when, uh, you know, at another is after Sandy Hook, you know, mm-hmm. Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia and believes strongly in, in the Second Amendment. And um, then Senator Pat Toomey from Pennsylvania worked, tried to get background checks pursued, and they just couldn't make headway at that time, despite overwhelming support across the country, you know, for this. And, you know, I, you know, I, you know another thing that, that Barry Black, the Senate chaplain, said, he says, you know, when babies die at church school, it's really time for us to move beyond thoughts and prayers. Mm-hmm. But wherever you try and look – the various structural opponents and structural opposition to progress on training, background checks. In fact, in Tennessee, it's going the opposite direction. People with permit a permit permitless, excuse me, environment for carrying handguns. It was something that passed in twenty. Want more rights? They want the rights to uh, take guns uh, unconcealed into colleges. I mean, it's a it's an amazing environment in some parts of the country where any constraint, any regulation is looked at as unconstitutional. And I, and I just want to make it clear when you say uh, structural impediments to change, what are you referring to there? I'm talking about the realities of money and politics and in lobbying that, um, that you know, we saw in Tennessee when Governor Bill Lee two years ago signed uh, the act that gave uh, the right for people to carry handguns in a permitless way, anyone above 21, and if you're in, in have served in the military between 18 and 20, um, they thanked publicly the National Rifle Association for their help in getting that through. Um, the NRA, uh, despite some you know bumps in its powers, continues to be enormously powerful in the United States, and it's one of the major factors, I think, in each of these efforts that have prevented, um, I, I would say, steps towards sensible gun management in this country. I mean, Zoe, it it makes me wonder about the limitations of action state by state because state borders are are porous (laughs) just because there are certain rules in Michigan. If you go to Illinois or if you, well, not Illinois isn't the best example, but if you go to Indiana, for instance, or Ohio, yeah. Yeah. You know your Midwest. Yeah, Yeah. there's going to be a different set of rules and you can move those weapons so easily across those state borders. There is. And and I was speaking with Michigan Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin just yesterday. She is a Democrat. She has the very unhappy distinction of what her office notes being the only congressperson to now represent two school shootings, Mm -hmm. right? And she has been very vocal in her support, as I mentioned, about the bills in Michigan. But this is why she introduced even more gun bills this week at the U.S. Capitol. But I mean, even she notes, right, a lot of this is introducing to just bring it up so we can have this national conversation as opposed to her suddenly thinking that she's going to get Republican support. 
I did ask her, though, she's part of the the Bipartisan Problem Solvers Caucus. And, and you know, what they, you know, they're very proud of CHIPS Act and, and talking about immigration, which really hasn't gone anywhere. But I asked her, like, are guns now at least being brought up into the topic of the conversation? She actually said that a, a, a Republican came up to her privately and said they wanted to start having this conversation. Quickly, though, I I wanted to also note about the structural issues, you know, NRA, absolutely. One of the things, too, though, is our primary system Mm -hmm. that, you know, because of the power that, that some of these lobbying groups and money does have, it might not be that a lawmaker in theory doesn't want this but doesn't feel like they can take the vote because they will not win their Republican primary. We got this question from Tom who says, is there any latitude for the federal government restricting guns under any statute pertaining to terrorism or homeland security? Joe, briefly, your thoughts? You know, the White House weighed in on that. For President Biden himself said, I, I'm, I'm all out. I, I've done everything that I can do on an executive level. And that does appear to be the case for the administration here. Without congressional involvement, you really can't do anything that's going to make a difference or that's going to stick. And, you know, when you have the aforementioned Marjorie Taylor Greene in hearings this week saying if a good guy with a gun had been there, dot, 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 we're never going to get past this argument. And that's been the refrain from Republicans all week. Let's stay with Congress. On Wednesday, senators questioned former Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz about the company's labor practices during a hearing before the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. Do you understand that in America, workers have a fundamental right to join a union and collectively bargain to improve wages, benefits, and working conditions? Do you understand that? I understand, and we respect the right of every partner who wears a green apron, whether they choose to join a union or not. Are you aware that NLRB judges have ruled that Starbucks violated federal labor law over 100 times during the past 18 months, far more than any other corporation in America? Sir, Starbucks Coffee Company unequivocally, and let me set the tone for this very early on, has not broken the law. That was Independent Senator Bernie Sanders questioning Schultz during the hearing. Sanders criticized Starbucks for its attempts to squash union efforts among its own employees. Joe, what came out of this hearing? Uh, Well, some sore feelings, I guess, on the part of Howard Schultz. You know, he actually comported himself uh, pretty well for most of that questioning. And by the way, he was going to be under threat of subpoena, which is why he finally showed up. Bernie Sanders was trying to uh, get this uh, to happen for some time. Uh, But look, he played it by the book. He was very self-disciplined, even through the Bernie Sanders questioning, although he clearly didn't like being called a billionaire. And he talked about his father and how he had been fired from a job and why how that prompted him to start Starbucks as a company. Uh, But it was later when Ed Markey, the, the senator from Massachusetts, invoked his father and told him that the employees who were trying to organize were no different than his dad. He actually kind of lost it a little bit. And, and there was a very dramatic back and forth that, that, that he was clearly offended. And, and he was eventually shut down by the chair, Bernie Sanders, in that back and forth. I don't know what comes of this. This was the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. It may not uh, result in legislation, but it certainly ended with uh, uh, Howard Schultz having a bad taste in his mouth. And lawmakers, Democrats like Bernie Sanders and Ed Markey able to make a point. You got some news out of this. It's just 
may not end in a change in policy. Well, Joe, as you allude to there, Schultz's questioning was split down party lines. But this week, the Senate came together to repeal decades-old war authorizations. On Thursday, the Senate voted to formally repeal authorizations for the 1991 Gulf War and the 2003 Iraq War. Zoe, what does repealing these authorizations do? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it feels like this really symbolic end, right? It would mean a final conclusion to the wars, uh, decades old. Um, you know, I think it's it's symbolic, but it's also a political story. I mean, right, how much of the vote that, uh, you know, senators made uh, in the early aughts came into the presidential campaigns, right, between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and the Democratic primary in 2008. And it feels like in some ways it's sort of the closing of a chapter in, in American history after 9-11. Uh, that's even though, you know, Barack Obama and Donald Trump had both used these authorizations for different uses during their presidency. Well, top Republicans. Oh, Steve, did you want to get in here? Well, I want to add one element that I think that we're not there yet in terms of all the authorizations. There's still underlying authorizations from 2001 uh, used to go after terror, but these were big tunnels through which all sorts Mm -hmm. of military activity uh, by the uh, executive branch was justified. But I would say, you know, that one of these, um, and it's interesting that the administration has come out and said that this will not affect any current deployments or activities. We have 900 U.S. service people deployed in Syria today. That was, at least to my read, um, uh, you know, in part justified through the Iraq war authorization of use of military force. So we're going to have to see how this plays out and how they rationalize and justify. In Iraq, we still have about 2,400 uh, service people, but they are there at, at the request of the Iraqi government. But it is not all cleaned up, and I don't think the uh, era of combat in the Middle East is over just yet. Well, we've got lots more news to get to. We'll stick with Congress after the break. But we wanted to mention two major train derailments this week. On Sunday, a train derailed a mile outside of Windermere, North Dakota, with 31 of 70 cars leaving the track in a large pileup. And evacuation orders have been lifted in Raymond, Minnesota, after a freight train derailed in a fiery crash near the small town early Thursday morning. Back with more in just a moment. Hello, I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr. Join me each week on In Black America as we profile current and historically significant figures whose stories help illuminate life in black America. You don't want to miss the conversation. KUT Radio and In Black America are members of the NPR Network. Thanks for listening to In Black America. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL. Because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to the news roundup. Top Republicans and Democrats are still struggling to agree on the debt ceiling. No meaningful negotiations seem to be happening between President Biden and Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy as the deadline approaches. June 5th is the last day to avoid a catastrophic default, according to the Treasury Department. Joe, earlier this year, Speaker McCarthy said he was optimistic about talks with Biden. What happened? 
Well, they haven't talked again. You know, it's interesting how how this got off to what seemed to be, to your point, a hopeful start. He sat down with uh, Joe Biden at the White House. He came out of the West Wing and talked to reporters about seeing a path forward here. But that was the 1st of February, and they have not actually had a conversation since then. This standoff here is complicated because you've got the debt ceiling and the separate issue of writing a budget. Kevin McCarthy says we need to have a deal on cuts to raise the debt ceiling. And the Democrats are saying, you know, where's your plan? That's been the refrain lately. Joe Biden has put up his budget. The Republicans in the House have not yet done so. And it looks like they won't for several more weeks here. This standoff could last quite a bit longer. As we like to say, nothing happens in Washington uh, without a deadline. But if you look at the calendar here, uh, this is starting to become deeply concerning because without a path forward, we know that lawmakers are about to go away for a couple of weeks. And when they come back, they're going to have as little as six weeks to figure this out. We don't have an X date, as they call it yet, when we would actually you know, go into default if, if we don't raise the debt limit. Uh, but it's likely to happen sometime this summer. And if you remember what happened in 2011 in the so-called fiscal cliff uh, scenario, S&P downgraded U.S. credit two weeks, two weeks before the X date. So that closes the window even more. And if there's no Republican plan, at least specifically about what cuts to take place to have a negotiation between the White House and the Hill, and specifically the Republican-led House, then there's apparently no deal to raise the debt ceiling. Democrats want to have a clean bill, just get it done, then we'll talk about the budget. Republicans want to attach these two, essentially, and not do one without the other. Mm. I'll tell you, as I sit here uh, close to Pennsylvania Avenue, in the middle of the House, the Congress and, and the White House, to my right and my left, we're seeing some letters go back and forth, but no conversations and little progress. So far, the market's which we watch very closely, of course, at Bloomberg, have been whistling past the graveyard because they believe Washington will get it done. And all sides say that they don't want a default. But at this moment, it's very difficult for me to describe what the path will be. I mean, Zoe, we're talking about this continuous one-upsmanship around mm-hmm. the debt ceiling, but it's happening at a time when there's already so many concerns about the stability of our economy. What is the end goal here? Right. And that's what's so unfortunate, right? Like what is, to what end? To what end? And this goes back even further um, to, you know, one of the deals made likely to get McCarthy the votes for speakership, that he wouldn't allow an increase in the debt ceiling without some kind of spending cuts. And so, you know, what Americans hear, you know, is deeply concerning deadlines, camp compromise, and it feels yet again like more of the same. And you'll wonder why you look around and, you know, Congress has some of the lowest approval ratings. And it's because it feels like it's not just arguing for arguing's sake, but that the economy already on such tender hooks and at the brink, and yet again, having to come down to a point where it's going to be not for a deadline, that they can't compromise without this waiting, waiting, waiting. And it feels very frustrating. And then you've got McCarthy making jokes about bringing lunch and soft foods. And you're like, this is going to possibly impact people's lives and pocketbooks. Steve, and just ground us in the reality of what happens if there's no agreement on the debt ceiling reached by the deadline. Well, as Joe just said, America will default on some debts and people uh, and analysts predict a global tsunami of economic havoc. Uh, I get a text every morning that tells me what the national debt is. And it's right now $31.46 trillion. And right now, by statute, the limit on 
uh, American debt is $31.4 trillion. It can't not go above that uh, number by, by statute. So um, we're already in the gray area right now by just a little bit. And I think that um, Joe, I think, laid it out. I think some people like Senator Manchin have said we shouldn't we should raise the debt ceiling, but we should set up other things that begin looking at how did we get this massive expansion of debt and what are the long-term liabilities and can't we have something like the Simpson-Bowles Commission that brings both parties together and begin looking at it. But another dimension that we haven't talked about is that some of those folks with whom Kevin McCarthy did a deal uh, to become a Speaker of the House – are kind of committed to seeing that day of havoc come and want America to default and look at that as the way to change the behavior and norms of this country and to pull back enormously on what on the role of the government in the U.S. economy. Um, so you have a problem with a thin majority of Republicans in the House that people actually want to see that wreckage happen. At least a few people do. And those few people have power. So, <laughs> I'm sorry, I just have to I just have to pause for a minute because when you say they want to see that wreckage happen, I mean there is the wreckage in the abstract, but that has a real effect on oh, the lives of American yeah. of American lives. Certainly. Well, I think it has a, a I mean when you when you undermine and essentially destroy the full faith and credit of the United States in global markets, um, the world will be different the next day. Mm-hmm. Terry sent us this message. What can we do when we do not have two parties willing to put our country first over their individualistic needs? I mean, Joe, I I can understand from a listener perspective, it's very frustrating because it feels as if this whole brinksmanship is completely outside of our power to do anything. But is there anything the average American can do? Uh, call your congressperson. Uh, you, you know, short of that, no, you're right. People don't have much say in this. I mean, you'll have a chance to weigh in next time you vote. But get ready to hear the word prioritization. You're going to be hearing this more from those Republicans uh, that Steve was referring to who helped to make Kevin McCarthy speaker. They don't always agree with him, but they're suggesting a plan here that instead of so-called default, what we do is we stop funding agencies and simply pay off the holders of our debt. That's going to be a massive argument. It's not even clear if it's legal or possible. Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, won't even talk about it. But, but if you want to you know, consider the idea of bringing this to the, to the brink, that's what Republicans say we will do. We're not actually default. We're going to pay off the interest on our debt and let everything else slide. And that could be the end of funding for programs for some time if that actually were to happen. Well, and, and be specific about the types of programs we're talking about. Uh, I'm talking about everything from imagine the last time you saw a government shutdown and the chain link went up in front of every national park. That could also affect uh, public health programs, though. It could affect a lot of things. It's difficult to say what program they would choose to defund. But there's not a lot of money to play with here if you're going to continue paying off uh, uh, essentially bondholders. The thing is, the politics are very dicey here because Democrats will be ready to say, "Okay, Republicans have decided to pay off Chinese credit holders and let you suffer at home domestically. And that is not a good story to tell in an election cycle. Well, meanwhile, Congress is trying to decide what to do with the Chinese-owned social media platform TikTok. On Wednesday, Republican Senator Josh Hawley tried to push through a vote on a bill that would ban TikTok from operating in the U.S., but his efforts were blocked by another Republican, Senator Rand Paul. 
What what happened here, Steve? Why were Holly's efforts blocked? Well, uh, Rand Paul is is a um, ferociously committed libertarian, and he said, "I don't think." We necessarily want to engage in the same practices that China does in restricting in restricting speech. So Rand Paul was the opponent in this case to um, Senator Josh Hawley's efforts to specifically target uh, and ban TikTok. Um, there are other efforts to deal with TikTok that are, are far less specific than what Josh Hawley did. But this became a um, discussion about the freedom of speech in the United States, and it was a fight among Republicans. And I think you're referring there to a bipartisan bill called the Restrict Act, which would target TikTok. It doesn't name it, but it does target it. The bill stands for restricting the emergence of security threats that risk information and communications technology. Briefly, what would it do if it passed? Well, what it does is it gives the Secretary of Commerce and the Department of Commerce enormous power to to look at companies, particularly social media companies that are owned by uh, designated foreign adversaries, uh, and particularly the control of that data that's involved. So without naming TikTok, this would create a screen through which to view all sorts of companies, global companies that are engaged in uh, uh, the passage of data and whatnot. What it really does in, in, in my book, I mean, I think there are a lot of concerns along you know, that folks have on privacy and what kind of powers you get, what are the checks and balances. I should say that the administration has thus far welcomed this effort. It is a bipartisan bill. John Thune and Mark Warner have been leading the effort in the Senate. Um, that said, there are lots of concerns about the power there. And, you know, the Secretary of Commerce and the Department of Commerce are important institutions. I don't want to denigrate the department at all. But let's just face it. It's been a sleepy, giant bureaucracy for a long time. This kind of bill, in addition to the CHIPS Act and other recent legislation, changes the Department of Commerce into becoming one of the most important epicenters of economic power thinking through national security concerns. It's a complete change in the way that industrial policy is thought of and foreign adversaries and commerce are thought of. And so that's the real change that the Restrict Act might bring uh, to the topography of economic decision-making in, in America. On Wednesday, the Food and Drug Administration approved Narcan for sale over-the-counter without a prescription. That's the brand name for naloxone nasal spray that reverses an opioid overdose. Now, Emergent Biosolutions is the company that produces Narcan. It expects the product to be available over-the-counter by late summer. Zoe, why is this a big deal for fighting the opioid epidemic? Well, exactly because of that, because we are in the midst of an opioid epidemic. And this means that this medication could be more available to folks who could overdose. Um, you know, we should note there, there are states where this has already been the case. Um, Michigan is one of them. I, I actually have Narcon here at our uh, station just in case, you know, we, we had a reason to need it. But this is really going to open it up more broadly. Um, one of the issues, though, it sort of reminds me about, you know, talking weeks ago about insulin costs. The issue will be the price. Right. And how it's sold for. Um, but again, it's something that advocates have been pushing for for a while. Um, this is likely going to save lives, uh, but I don't think anyone thinks it's going to do anything to get at the root and the cause of, again, what the United States is facing when it comes to this drug crisis. Well, on Wednesday, the Senate passed a GOP-led resolution to end the COVID-19 national emergency with a 68 to 23 vote. The White House declared the national emergency when the pandemic first hit in 2020. President Biden is expected to sign off on the resolution. Biden had already announced he would end the COVID-19 national emergency by May 11th. Joe, what difference does it make ending the national emergency in April versus May? 
Uh, none, really. I mean, the, the president, uh, you know, just chose that date uh, a few months ago and looks like the Republicans have beat him to it. They've been very busy in a lot of messaging bills in the House. And this was a big one here that they could actually put their stamp on ending the COVID emergency. Uh, they've been holding hearings on the origins of COVID. They've questioned uh, the administration's handling of this public health emergency. And of course, this is something that goes back uh, in, on a very partisan level for many, many years. Uh, but the president says he will not veto uh, this uh, bill. He, he will actually sign this when it comes to his desk. And that's going to raise a lot of questions about funding for, for programs. It's going to be much more difficult to do so. And it also raises questions about Title 42 on our southern border because that was justified by the COVID health emergency. And it's going to prompt the administration to prepare to enact its new immigration policies. Steve? Well, I, I would add here that you know one of the other elements here which I find fascinating is somehow the comments from some House representatives in the Democratic Party that were frustrated that they weren't given a heads up. You know, Representative Dan Kilmeade uh, is out there saying he's not happy at all about this and didn't get you know the kinds of heads up they expected. But I think broadly, it's not just about COVID. And I think Joe just you know intimated this with some other impacts that removing an emergency emergency you know authorizations uh, in the in the COVID area affect student loans, mm-hmm. affect issues related to rent, all of those social adjustments that we made to accommodate people in times of need and stress because of this COVID period we've been going through, all of that is going to end. I interviewed Representative Jan Schakowsky, realized and said, we've got to think about the back end effects of that. I think she has a point, and I don't think we're having that discussion yet. On Wednesday, the Republican lawmakers banned gender-affirming care in Kentucky after they overrode Democratic Governor Andy Bashir's veto. Zoe, how will this affect transgender kids in Kentucky? Um, well, it means that, you know, children are not going to get the care that they need and that doctors who many, you know, one could argue know best are not going to be the ones who are making these decisions. Um, Kentucky's Democratic Party, you know, said the measure is the most extreme anti-LGBTQ bill in America. And this just goes again to discussions that the country is having right now about, you know, these huge economic issues that, that you know, we are facing, but also that culture wars and societal conversations about uh, you know, civil rights um, continue to to take center stage. Is it likely to face any legal challenges? I only can imagine not, you know, being a legal professor that, of course, I mean, if someone needs specific medical care for a reason, and these are conversations happening right now as well in Michigan uh, over abortion, right? Like who gets to be the one to decide health care? Is it between a politician or is it between you and your doctor? Well, we'll leave the conversation there. My thanks to our guests this week, Zoe Clark. She's the political director at Michigan Radio and the host of It's Just Politics. Also with us, Joe Matthew. He's from Bloomberg News, and he's the host of Balance of Power, the daily political show on Bloomberg TV. And Steve Clemens. He's the editor-at-large at Semaphore. Steve, Joe, Zoe, thank you so much. And one more bit of news this week before we head to the international edition of the News Roundup. It's batter up for baseball fans this week. Thursday welcomed Major League Baseball's opening day and along with it, new rules to the game. MLB games now include a pitching timer to speed up innings and bigger bases to help increase player safety when running or stealing bases. MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred says the MLB changes come down to, well, what viewers want to see. 
Before heading to the big leagues, rules were tested in minor league settings. Manfred stated in a press conference that each of the rules had been tested at about 8,000 minors games. We'll be back with the global edition of the News Roundup in just a moment. We've got a lot to cover, so stay with us. On It's Been a Minute, we're keeping you in the know when it comes to culture. I break down the latest trends and the forces behind them and introduce you to the creatives who think deeply about how we live today. Come for some good old cultural analysis and have a few laughs with me. Listen to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR. The NPR app cuts through the noise, bringing you local, national, and global coverage. No paywalls, no profits, no nonsense. Download it in your app store today. It's the international edition of the News Roundup, the time we take each week to break down the biggest stories from around the world. A lot to get to this week. The upcoming Taiwanese president's trip to the U.S. has drawn the ire of China's Communist Party. We're watching post-election protests in Kenya. Was the Biden administration warned about the Taliban's advances into Kabul in 2021? And of course, we have international reaction to the indictment of the former American president. It's a busy hour ahead. Joining me today, David Rennie. He's the Beijing bureau chief for The Economist, and he co-hosts the podcast Drum Tower. David, hello. Hello. Also with us, Nancy Youssef, national security correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Nancy, welcome back. Thank you. And Dan Kurtzvalen, editor of Foreign Affairs and author of The China Mission, George Marshall's Unfinished War, 1945 to 1947. Dan, it's great to have you back. Thanks so much. Good to be back. So let's start with a story we've covered extensively here on the Roundup, protests in Israel over judicial reform. The controversy stems from several bills amending Israel's basic laws, so legally the equivalent to constitutional amendments. The bills would grant members of parliament or the Knesset control over judicial appointments, eliminate judicial review of legislation, and allow parliament to vote down Supreme Court decisions. After three months of rapidly growing nationwide protests in Israel by opponents of this proposal, Israel's political crisis boiled over on Sunday and nearly shut down the country. Dan, what happened? So as you say, we saw starting Sunday night and into Monday a really remarkable escalation in the rift in Israel over the Netanyahu government's proposed judicial overhaul. This is, again, an effort to weaken the Supreme Court's oversight of the Knesset, which Netanyahu and his coalition control. So it really would have been uh, a real expansion in the government's ability to uh, to get its agenda across. It was seen as a power grab by much of the opposition, um, You know, removing the real checks on what Netanyahu can do. Some in Israel were talking about it as a coup. And it goes to the heart of so many profound rifts in, Israel, in Israeli society, whether that's right versus left or secular versus religious. And what had been building over the, the days leading up to 
uh, last weekend and Monday was a, a, a really growing opposition across as much of Israeli society. So that was most notably seen among military reservists, many of whom said they wouldn't report for duty if the overhaul went through. The, their argument was they would no longer be serving a democracy. This would be the end of Israeli democracy, so they would no longer be obligated to serve. That included some of the country's most elite pilots and other troops, so it had real national security implications. On Sunday, the, the defense minister, um, who had been uh, warning that the overhaul was bringing real cost to Israel's military readiness and national security, um, the government put out a statement that he was being fired for his opposition. And that's what led to the escalation on Sunday and Monday. You saw huge crowds blocking highways and picketing uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's house in the Knesset, um, really shutting down the country, shutting down airports and everything else, along with the, this ongoing issue of whether uh, it would affect military readiness. And you had warnings from the U.S., much uh, sharper and more public than usual. And this all comes at a time when Israel is facing lots of um, pretty pretty grave national security challenges, whether it's Iran sitting at the nuclear threshold or escalating tensions in the West Bank or on the northern border with threats from Hezbollah. So uh, after after these protests spread, as, after the defense minister's warning, Netanyahu finally agreed on Monday to pause the legislation. But what's really critical is that he has said he is just pausing it. He has not uh, agreed to withdraw it. So there'll be a, a, a bit of a, a respite as there are negotiations over what happens. But the, uh, the crisis has... Uh, has uh, subsided for the moment, but it is not fundamentally passed. Nancy, give us some more context around how this issue has exposed tensions between President Biden and Bibi Netanyahu. Well, what we heard this week from the president was relatively to, given the relationship between the two nations, stark language from him about how um, Israel and Netanyahu specifically have been handling um, this crisis, essentially calling for calm. And this was met by um, frustration from Netanyahu himself, and then as saying that that essentially that um, the United States shouldn't be interfering in, in Israeli affairs. Again, language you don't expect to hear from um, historically strong allies, and then an attempt to say that relations between the two countries are in fact um, stable and intact. And so on a week of really um, unprecedented instability and anxiety across the country about what will happen during this month-long pause. I think seeing um, those kinds, that kind of um, tension and rhetoric between the two sides, I think just further exasperated um, the feelings of instability around this issue. Well, on Thursday, human rights attorney and Palestinian citizen of Israel, Sal Sanzahair, spoke to Morning Edition. I think that a lot of us uh, tried to check what our role would be as uh, Palestinian human rights lawyers, leaders, whatever, because the, the issue here is that you cannot talk about democracy when there is occupation. It doesn't matter if you are a Palestinian citizen or a Jewish citizen in Israel. You cannot talk about democratic values when there is occupation. We are regarded as the other without relation to the protests. So all the more so when the protest began, we didn't want to be part in a national protest when we didn't feel that we are part of the nation. David, what might we see as this story develops about these these larger questions about Israeli democracy, as we've just heard there from um, Saswan? It's a very good question, because what we're really looking at is a, a massive public argument playing out on the streets of Israel and not just in parliament about what kind of country is Israel. And clearly, these very dramatic protests involving, uh, you know, very, very large numbers of people, including 
people who are not normally traditionally protesters, not just kind of left-wing activists. You're seeing, as you heard, uh, re- reservist officers, some of the most elite reservist officers uh, taking to the streets. You're seeing uh, fairly conservative Israelis making a big point of going out with the Israeli flag, the Star of David, talking about how the very founding of Israel was supposed to be a democracy with powerful institutions including a Supreme Court. Uh, You're seeing speeches being given by retired generals uh, stressing their patriotism and trying to present this as the entire kind of patriotic Israeli society coming together to defend their vision of a country that they feel is being challenged by this extremely right-wing, extremely, in some cases, racist uh, government coalition that Bibi Netanyahu had to form to come back into office. But as you heard there from that interview from Morning Edition, There's a fifth of the Israeli population, almost two million people, who are Arab Israelis, descendants of Palestinians who live inside Israel's borders. And they feel that this kind of this mood of optimism, if you like, from many Israelis, that people on the streets are defending the Israel that they love, the Israeli democracy that they believe is kind of the country they live in. That just doesn't sound the same if you're one of the one fifth of Israel's population who are Arab Israelis. And it's been a very kind of painful moment, I think, for some, particularly some of the Left-wing Israeli groups who traditionally do support the Palestinian cause have found it very difficult, according to reporting from Israel, to get some of their traditional allies from those causes to take part in these demonstrations. because They just feel that this is not a conversation about Israel and the nature of Israel that makes sense if you're an Arab Israeli. So another sad indication of what an incredibly divided country Israel is right now. Well, we'll bring you more on this story on Monday's 1A. How has the proposed judicial reform affected the relationships between the U.S. and Israel? Share your thoughts with us via our app, 1A Vox Pop. If you have questions about the judicial reforms, you can also share those with us. Email us at 1A at WAMU.org. The head of the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, visited Zaporizhia nuclear power plant this week. It's Europe's largest nuclear power plant, and it sits on the front lines of Russia's war on Ukraine. Escalating fighting around the plant has nuclear experts on edge. IAEA Director General Grossi says both countries are close to a deal that would create a zone of protection around the plant. He says the agreement isn't to stop the war, just to prevent a nuclear disaster. Nancy, what are the big safety concerns for this plant? Well, it's the largest nuclear plant in Europe, and it has been under Russian control for about a year. And in that time, we have seen fighting near um, generators have had to be used at times because damage has happened around this plant. So on a very fundamental level, there's concern about a nuclear catastrophe if um, the plant is hit. And I think that was some of the concerns that you heard this week. How broad? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, please. Well, I I was curious how Ukraine and and Russia have responded to the nuclear agency's call for a deal. Well, we heard this week that he sort of downplayed his expectations of what kind of deal he'd like to see. Um, President Zelensky, in an interview with the AP, said that he did not see the chances of a a resolution um, to those talks happening soon. Um, Moscow said that they're in contact with the IAEA, um, that they've seen the proposals, and um, but nothing has been decided. And so it doesn't seem that there's going to be an imminent decision um, to resolve this issue. And in fact, what we've seen instead is that that area has been sort of a staging ground for Russia to launch attacks nearby uh, to other towns nearby. 
the concern is, as we've talked about on the show, there's an expected spring offensive. We don't know the sort of scope and scale of that offensive, but presumably if this area has been used um, as a strategic hub, if you will, for Russia, could it be done so going forward on a much bigger scale in this offensive? And so um, I think there's an effort to try to resolve this um, ahead of that, but um, there has not been an agreement about how to do it. And I think it really sort of portends sort of the bigger challenges of resolving this conflict writ large, that that even sort of agreeing on the framework of a discussion uh, can't, that agreement can't be reached. Before we move on, a quick note about Finland. On Thursday, the country cleared the last hurdle for NATO membership. They asked to join the alliance last year after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Sweden's membership is still pending. Let's move on to Ukraine. Numerous world leaders have visited Ukraine in recent months, including President Joe Biden. But in an interview with the Associated Press this week, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky says there's another leader he'd like to have visit, China's President Xi Jinping. I want to speak with him because I have con- I had contact with him before full-scale war. But during all this year, more than one year, I didn't have. And I really wait when our teams will uh, find like the solution. To, but no plans yes. at the moment. Yes. Okay. Yes. Would you invite him here to Ukraine? Oh, yes. We are ready. We are ready to see him here. That other voice you're hearing is AP executive editor Julie Pace. David, how notable is this invitation to China's president? It's not the first time, but I think what you're hearing there, the way that he's very cautiously, very kind of politely welcoming Xi Jinping to visit, he knows Xi Jinping is not going to visit anytime soon because Xi Jinping hasn't even spoken to Vladimir Zelensky. Uh, on the phone at all since this war began. And I think what that points to is that China's official position, that it's neutral in this war and that it's got this peace plan that would call on both sides to uh, come to the table of dialogue and and to cease their fighting. That's a completely insincere position that uh, China's supposed neutrality is actually a pro-Russian pseudo-neutrality. And the problem for Vladimir Zelensky is that he needs all the friends he can get China is a very powerful country. It's a permanent member of the Security Council, but it's also uh, the most important sort of diplomatic and financial backer, really, of the Russians, even if uh, it doesn't for the moment appear that China is sending weapons and lethal assistance to Russia, which was something the Americans had warned China publicly against doing. So Vladimir Zelensky is in this very difficult position because China has made it abundantly clear that it does not want Vladimir Putin to lose this war. It doesn't want him to be defeated. And Vladimir Zelensky can't call the Chinese out on that because he needs all the powerful countries on his side that he can get. And I think the final thing that's so depressing here in China, and I spent so much time uh, over the last year talking to Chinese officials and Chinese scholars about this, is it's not that they dislike Ukraine. It's not that they actually need Ukrainians to die. This is about China's relationship with America. And because they think that Russia is a useful ally for China in that contest with America, they don't want Putin to lose this war and be weakened. And so for the sake of China's ambitions to become perhaps the world's most powerful country, which involve displacing America, they are going to let many, many more more Ukrainians die and certainly will keep Vladimir Zelensky waiting, we assume, quite a lot longer before they do him the courtesy of even speaking to him. Well, on Thursday, Russia's security service arrested an American Wall Street Journal reporter, Evan Gershkovich, on espionage charges. Here's Vedant Patel, a spokesman at the State Department. We are in close contact with the Wall Street Journal on this issue. And also, I would like to make it clear that it is not safe for U.S. citizens to be in the Russian Federation. 
Nancy, I know you and your colleagues at the Wall Street Journal are deeply affected by what's happening to Evan. But Dan, this is the first time a U.S. correspondent has been detained on spying accusations since the Cold War. The Wall Street Journal denies all allegations against him and is seeking his immediate release. Where was Evan detained? So Evan was reporting in a city called uh, Yekaterinburg, which is on the eastern side of the Ural Mountains. The FSB, the Russian Security Service, claims that he was trying to obtain secret information uh, relating to, uh, as they put it, one of the enterprises of the Russian military-industrial complex. Both the uh, Wall Street Journal and the U.S. government have denied those charges. But it's it's worth noting that he was there with accreditation. He was he was allowed to be in the country. He'd been reporting from, from Russia. He'd done a great piece just a few days ago on the damage to the Russian economy since the war started. Um, and the the speculation is that this is not really about what he was doing. It's not about the the reporting or what he was doing on this trip. It's about needing to have him as a potential uh, uh, hostage to trade. So this has been a, a kind of um, running theme in the war uh, since the war started. We saw, of course, uh, Brittany Griner's detention and eventual trade for her. And this gives um, the Russian government really a kind of you know prominent high value. Uh, chip in a future negotiation with the United States. It, it may not be a coincidence that this comes uh, the same week that the U.S. has unveiled charges against uh, a young Russian spy who was uh, impersonating a Brazilian student at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, which is a place full of current and future American military and government officials uh, in, a, in a scenario where you imagine them trying to get uh, this Russian spy back. They would be able to um, uh, hold out the Evan Gershkovich as a, as a kind of hostage for for the American negotiations. So uh, I imagine we'll be seeing more, more of this soon, but this is really about, about him being a um, valuable prisoner for the Russians, not about what he was doing. Well, Evan is now due to be held in custody until May 29th. The president has been briefed about his situation. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said the U.S. is seeking consular access to him. Typically in these cases, Dan, what, what happens next? So they, they they will continue to try to ensure that he is treated relatively uh, humanely while he's in Russian custody, and there'll be a kind of official legal process. But I expect we'll also see lots of behind-the-scenes maneuvering, or we won't exactly see it, but it'll be happening. Um, and there will be, at some point, a, an official uh, um, process about what, a discussion about what the Russians want in exchange. And you can imagine there'll be escalating political pressure from the Wall Street Journal, from from Evan's family and friends. Um, to to get him back. And the real question is what the Russians will be asking and whether that seems like a price that the, the U.S. government is willing to pay. Let's move now to another story that dominated headlines in the U.S., the indictment of former President Donald Trump. David, I want to get a sense from you first. What are people saying about it in China or perhaps the region at large? So it's quite muted here in China. Um, yeah, I, I watched the, the main state evening news tonight, the Xinhua Lianbo. I, I watch it so you don't have to, trust me. <laughs> and uh, uh, at the very end of the news bulletin, it was very briefly noted. And, you know, they could yet decide to downplay this because they're currently on a sort of charm offensive with American business leaders to try and get people to invest in China because the economy is slowing. But this does fit clearly into a propaganda story that we saw again this week that they released some reports to counter uh, President Biden's uh, democracy summit. Uh, they, they put out these reports about how America's democracy is fake. It's about uh, the richest people in America running the system for their own benefit, uh, that this is part of a piece with America's human rights being a fake, that you it's the worst sort of run country in the world and a general kind of torrent of anti-Americanism. So should the Chinese propaganda machine choose to crank open the tap 
and direct this kind of torrent of anti-American propaganda, which we see every day in the direction of Donald Trump, they're perfectly capable of doing that. But for the moment, the story doesn't suit them that much. It's a little bit yicky as well. And it's a very prudish uh, propaganda machine here. So they don't really want to get into the, also the allegations about Stormy Daniels and so on. Um, for the rest of the world, I'm afraid uh, this is going to be part spectacle and, you know, for people who mock America and part a worry, I think, if you want the serious point, that maybe Donald Trump could be coming back in 2024. And I can tell you that any number of Western governments are absolutely terrified about that prospect and what it would mean for their relations with America. Nancy, what are you hearing from other international sources? Well, you know, it's funny. I was, I'm was i so used to, in the course of my work, reading um, um, papers around the world to see how they're reacting to events. And as I was reading the coverage of this, um, it was papers looking for America's reaction. Um, I saw an Italian newspaper making reference to, will this lead to protests? And uh, some European papers asking whether um, what this means for democracy writ large and whether this signals um, the return of Trump in 2024. And so it's fascinating to watch how other nations are looking at this as sort of an example of how a democracy responds um, to um, to charges against a former leader, how the people respond. Um, and I think we should note that the indictment hasn't been unsealed. And I think one of the reasons you're seeing some of the muted response that we heard spoken about earlier is that we haven't had a chance to read it and really understand it. So over the course of the next few days, obviously Americans will be reading it the indictment and and making an assessment. But you get the sense in the sort of initial coverage that the international community is looking at America's reaction as what it says about the state of democracy writ large. Dan, any thoughts? Well, I I think there's a Rorschach test quality to this. You can see this in a couple of different ways. On the one hand, it is a sign of of accountability, of the triumph of the rule of law. But the fact that we're here at all is also a testament to the Um, rather sad and complicated state of American democracy. So I think you see um, a range of reactions that are in some ways motivated by which of those um, which of those notes you want to you want to stress. And this comes, of course, at a time of uh, lots of other democratic crises across across the world. So I think it's seen often through the lens of, of democratic problems elsewhere. Let's move on to another story. A Mexican court has released arrest orders for six people in relation to a deadly fire at a northern Mexico detention facility near the U.S. border. The fire killed 39 people. The National Immigration Institute said an additional 28 people were seriously injured. The men held in the detention facility were from Guatemala, Honduras, Venezuela, and El Salvador. Surveillance video released on Tuesday captured two guards seeing the fire and walking away, making no apparent attempt to rescue anyone. Dan, what have Mexican authorities said about the cause of the fire at the detention facility? This was in Ciudad Juarez. That's right. So they they initially have blamed the migrants themselves for lighting some small mattresses on fire. This was done uh, allegedly in protest over the threat of of deportation. These uh, migrants who had been trying to get to the United States and were being held in this detention center as they um, uh, uh, wanted to make asylum requests um, were were under threat of being sent back to their own countries, which they fled for reasons of you know violence and economic hardship and 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 other uh, threats to their own lives and livelihoods. Um, the Mexican government uh, had tr- had said that they had lit 
uh, these matches on fire over protests. But the surveillance videos have shown very clearly that um, even even if that may be true, the guards and the the supervisors at this facility would have had an opportunity to unlock the door and save um, uh, you know at least many of these migrants. And instead, as the charges from the Mexican government indicate, they they walked away. This kind of very kind of shocking video. Um, showing them uh, uh, disregarding uh, what was obviously a threat to the lives of the migrants. So this is both a, a very kind of particular human tragedy, but also really throws into sharp relief uh, the much wider challenge of the migration crisis and the really thorny uh, policy and political challenges it raises. So this is uh, in some ways kind of captured um, in, in, in one particular tragedy, a much bigger problem. We're talking to Dan kurtz with Foreign Affairs, Nancy Youssef with The Wall Street Journal, and David Rennie in China for The Economist. I'm Jen White. You're listening to 1A. Nancy, what conditions are migrants facing at the detention facilities in northern Mexico? They're facing two things. One, there's been a surge of migrants coming forward. And so in in these communities, they are using these detention centers, um, putting more and more people in these facilities. What was supposed to be for maybe a couple days has turned into a weeks-long process. They're they're overcrowded. They don't have enough um, space. They don't have enough water. They don't have any of the protections that one would hope um, that they would have in these situations. In some of the communities, we're seeing a backlash saying, for example, don't give those who are begging for money money. They can get a job. We heard that in the community in which this fire broke out. And we're seeing a real stress on um, on the border, both on the Mexican side and on the U.S. side. And so um, it's 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 we, we the fire, I think, was the most dramatic display of the border tensions. But around it are are, are, are tensions happening every day and with increased frequency. Well, hundreds of migrants attempted to force their way through the international bridge to El Paso earlier this month. On Wednesday, a Venezuelan migrant in Juarez spoke with the Associated Press about the dangers of the immigration system. He says, quote, terrible. They make us go backwards. They take our money. It's horrible. I'd say the jungle is better. Everyone says the jungle is dangerous, but the truth is hell is found in Mexican migration. That's the truth, end quote. Immigration rights advocates in the U.S. argue asylum seekers from Central and South America have been shut out of the country. Dan, what more are advocates looking for from the Biden administration? So there is frustration over what I think the Biden administration would say is this balancing act it's trying to strike. It's trying to um, say at least that it wants a more humane uh, approach to, to, to migrants and asylum, and, and asylum seekers than you saw under the Trump administration. But at the same time, it's been facing this incredible surge in, in migration and asylum seekers from uh, lots of places in the Western Hemisphere that are facing really acute political and economic problems. Also, um, asylum seekers from from China and, and and Russia and elsewhere. So it faces the the political problem and and also just the sheer um, uh, uh, difficulty of receiving this huge number of migrants that have been trying to cross the southwestern border in recent years. Um, at the same time, as it um, wants to. Um, uh, push immigration reform to do something to you know regularize the status of undocumented migrants in the U.S. What it has done 
in response to this really terrible surge is try to send people back to Mexico, saying that if you cross through Mexico, you have to apply for asylum there. And if you don't, we will we will send you back. So that's why you're getting these these huge numbers in Mexico. Some of this is related to a, a health order put in place during the Trump administration that's going to end soon. But the Biden administration has uh, uh, in some ways reinforced it. So activists would really like to see that that change and go back to allowing uh, asylum seekers to come in the U.S. and have their claims processed here. But um, instead, the Biden administration has, uh, you know, out of fear of just the sheer numbers and political problem of it, um, stuck with something like the Trump administration's policy of keeping these people in Mexico. Well, Nancy, on Monday, a group of Senate Democrats formally denounced a Biden administration plan to disqualify non-Mexican migrants from seeking asylum. Explain what's happening there. So as we were discussing earlier, this proposal put forward by the Biden administration to address the um, expiration of Title 42, which on May 11th ends, and it's what uh, allowed the Trump administration to ban asylum um, seekers from entering the country as an emergency health provision. And so the Biden administration, as was mentioned, put forward a proposal that said um, if, if, my, if asylum seekers didn't try to seek it, asylum in another country— notably Mexico, um, that they would be ineligible to apply in the United States. And so a group of Democratic legislators have called the new proposal unlawful and counterproductive, that they see this as sort of a revised version of what was in place under the Trump administration, and that it really goes around um, congressional authority uh, that really sets um, limitations on asylum eligibility. Um, I think it's important because remember that the Biden administration campaigned on um, the the promise of restoring access to the asylum system. And, and I think this is a reminder that while we're talking about international news and what's happening at the border on this issue, the, politi- the politics around it are really important in terms of reaching a resolution. Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen went on a tour of the island's diplomatic allies in the Americas this week. She spent time in New York and is scheduled to visit Guatemala, Belize, and Los Angeles on April 5th. David, why is President Tsai on this trip? She's doing something familiar that has been done before, and she's doing something new and actually quite smart. The familiar thing is that tour of the allies that you mentioned. So Taiwan is only recognized by just over a dozen countries now uh, around the world, most of them small island states, but a couple of Uh, countries in Central America, uh, Guatemala and Belize. And so she's going to visit them just to be, for a very unusual chance for her, to be the president, the head of state of a country that is recognized and has an embassy and will be treated as any other head of state. Now, that's not the case when she visits America, because remember, since the 1970s, in order to have relations with the People's Republic of China, where I am here in Beijing, America had to choose. It had to swap its recognition from, if you like, the other China, the island of Taiwan, to China. And so when she visits America, she's on a a technically a transit. She's on a stopover. And the Chinese government, where I am in Beijing, is extremely ferocious about any meetings with high-ranking American officials that look like the American government recognizing Taiwan's existence as a state. And what she's doing this time, which is smart and new, is she's getting around a big problem, which is that the new Republican Speaker of the House of Representatives, Kevin McCarthy, wants to meet her because Taiwan is very popular in Congress. Uh, It's a friendly pro-Western democracy that is under pressure from China. So he was very keen to go to Taiwan and pay her a visit, which, if you remember, Nancy Pelosi, the former speaker, did last year while she was still Democratic Speaker of the House. And the Chinese hated that because they said this is the most 
the, the third highest ranking official in the American government visiting Taiwan. This is outrageous. And you saw these very, very aggressive war games while Nancy Pelosi was on the island last year. So Tsai Ing-wen came up with a compromise, which was that she would meet Kevin McCarthy in his district in California so that he wouldn't visit Taiwan. And that, I think, is all part of her actual uh, strength, which is that she's an extremely cautious, pragmatic, moderate figure who understands the stakes of this conflict between China, Taiwan and America and is trying to keep the international room alive for Taiwan as an entity without provoking China in unnecessary ways. So it's actually a really interesting visit. And you're seeing the Chinese, for the moment, slightly calibrated. They're talking about as long as she doesn't meet any very senior American officials. We saw state media today saying that perhaps this was, you know, it's obviously outrageous and they're very cross, but they're not turning the dial of outrage up to kind of 11. Hmm. Well, and, and David, just just place this within the broader context of what we were discussing earlier, uh, Russia's relationship with China and Russia's invasion of Ukraine and where China stands on that. It's a fascinating parallel because, of course, uh, you know, the most basic parallel is that people said, oh, he would never do something crazy, Vladimir Putin, like invade Ukraine. And then he did. And so at a basic level, that gets everyone's attention because there is a lingering fear that the leader of China, where I am, Xi Jinping, feels that it is his historical duty uh, and it will be his historical legacy to take back the island of Taiwan, which China claims is just a sort of province uh, that should be part of China as soon as possible. There's also the question that when the Americans uh, criticize China for threatening Taiwan uh, and saying that uh, you know China is bullying Taiwan, which is a peace-loving democracy, the Chinese line is, well, how dare you? You, 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 you disrespect our sovereignty over Taiwan. And then you talk about respecting the sovereignty of Ukraine. So you are completely hypocritical. And so the Chinese will say that uh, America's support for Ukraine um, and, and its criticism of Russia for invading Ukraine is entirely hypocritical because it should be backing China, uh, which is the sovereign power that should own Taiwan. So it's all feeding into this sense of a kind of three-way triangle with Russia, China and America as the three great powers. Uh, and for China, you know, they genuinely feel at the moment that America is bent on keeping them down, is bent on containing China, is not willing to let China become the powerful country that China wants to be. To be. And Taiwan is their kind of Ukraine-Russia conflict, if you like. It's, it's, it's where they think that they could end up in a, in, a, in a war with America. And so it's a fantastically dangerous moment because uh, here in Beijing, it should be unthinkable that America and China could go to war over Taiwan. But I can tell you there are plenty of people, certainly Western diplomats based here in Beijing, uh, who do not think it's unthinkable. And part of that is looking at the support that Xi Jinping uh, is offering to Vladimir Putin. And so they worry that the world is heading into a very, very unstable, very, very dangerous place. Well, on Tuesday, Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall said China's expansion of its nuclear arsenal is the most disturbing development that he's seen in his decades-long career. I don't think I've seen anything more disturbing in my career maybe than the uh, Chinese expansion, uh, ongoing expansion of their nuclear force. Uh, for decades, they were quite comfortable with a, uh, an arsenal of a few hundred nuclear weapons, which was fairly clearly a second strike capability uh, to act as a deterrent. And that the expansion that they're undertaking puts us into a new world that we've never lived in before where you have three powers, three great powers, essentially, with large arsenals of nuclear weapons. Kendall made that statement during a hearing before the House Appropriations Committee. Nancy, what else did he say about China's nuclear expansion? 
Well, there are fears that if China continues this pace of nuclear expansion, it will have a stockpile about 1,500 warheads by 2035. They've surpassed 400 right now. I think the context in which he was saying this before the House Appropriations Committee at a budget hearing was so often we talk about China's expansion um, in terms of its ship presence, its its aggressive behavior, increasingly aggressive behavior towards Taiwan. But the nuclear capability, I think he was saying, is just as important. And it comes at a time when we have seen the tensions between the U.S. and Moscow over the last remaining nuclear arms treaty, the START treaty. Last month, um, Vladimir Putin said Moscow would step down from that treaty. Earlier this week, we saw that Russia said it would no longer exchange key data on strategic nuclear forces. Um, And so I think what the secretary was trying to do was to signal that if China becomes that third nation with a large nuclear arsenal, now is the time to find a way for dialogue, which is what he made reference to, because at the right now we are seeing the potential um, unraveling of a decade-long era of constraint around nuclear weapons. We got this question from Jeff, who says, could it be that Putin's escalation in nuclear rhetoric this week is an indication that President Xi denied Putin's latest request for aid, especially since Putin and Xi seem to have reached an agreement the week before not to expand nuclear weapons into third countries? David, your thoughts? I mean, people are always looking for signs of a gap between China and Russia because, you know, there are good reasons, logical reasons, why China should be upset with Putin for causing this war and and now not doing well in this war, having declared him their best friend. You know, Xi Jinping is now best friends with a loser, which is not what China wants. But I think the problem is that, you know, we have seen China saying sort of responsible and reassuring things about how it'd be very dangerous to use nuclear threats or certainly to use nuclear weapons. But there isn't any real sign of daylight between these two leaders. Now, there are people in the Chinese machine who know that this is not great for China, that it's damaging their reputation in the rest of the, in the, rest of the West, certainly, uh, to be so pro-Putin. But I think there's this really remarkable uh, sort of friendship. And it's it's a weird word to use about these two very cold men. But I do think that Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping do see the world uh, in, in very similar ways. And you hear that from sort of senior officials, senior diplomats uh, who've seen the two men together. And so I, I, I fear that it'd be nice to think there was daylight between them, but I'm not sure that there's really sort of clear evidence of that. Well, let's move on to another part of the world. U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris visited Ghana this week. While there, she made comments defending LGBT rights, which are severely restricted in the West African country. Gay sex is punishable there by up to three years in prison. I feel very strongly about the importance of supporting uh, the, the, the freedom and, and supporting and fighting for equality among all people and that all people be treated equally. I will also say that uh, this is an issue that we consider and I consider to be a human rights issue and that will not change. Vice President Harris spoke in Ghana in the midst of legislative debate over a bill that would restrict LGBT rights even further. Dan, give us the details. So th- this this represents an escalation in an already fairly repressive policy when it comes to gay rights in Ghana. The bill would uh, imprison those who identify as LG- LGBTQ. It would criminalize advocacy for o- over gay rights. Um, and what you saw in the exchange between um, Vice President Harris and then senior Ghanaian officials was kind of a dispute about whether this is something that the U.S. has any right to criticize them on, on at all. So you had, um, in, in response to Vice President Harris's comments, a fairly sharp um, 
uh, reaction from the Ghanaian speaker who said something like, you know, what is democracy? Why do, why do you have the right to dictate to us? And it's hard not to see all of this also in light of some of the dynamics we've been talking about earlier. Uh, there's a lot of uh, concern over Chinese influence in Africa. And part of the reason for Vice President Harris's trip is to um, to reinforce U.S. ties, reinforce U.S. US influence. And this really highlights what is different between the approaches the two countries take. China's very happy to um, support leaders to you know hand over money without asking much in the way of uh, democracy or human rights. And the U.S. is, is trying to, to balance those more strategic interests against these kinds of values. And so in the, the rhetoric you saw from Vice President Harris, she clearly couldn't be in Ghana and not say anything, but was trying to um, balance that with this desire to really uh, reinforce the relationship. And, and it's, it's, it's a really complicated balancing act. Well, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and Secretary of State Antony Blinken made the trip to Africa recently as well. And as you said, Dan, their motivation, at least in part, is to counterbalance Chinese and Russian influence on the continent. David, how effective are these trips at counterbalancing the influence of these other nations? I mean, it's better that they go than that they don't. And certainly, I think there was a lot of dismay uh, during the Trump administration that certainly Donald Trump's kind of really scornful language that he used about African countries and a sense that the Trump administration really only saw Africa as of any interest uh, as a place to kind of insult China and, and accuse them of, of kind of bad behavior. I think, you know, you cannot compete uh, for hearts and minds in Africa if you are not there. So at a basic level, it's important that China, that America is there. And, you know, they have some very, very long standing relationships. And we shouldn't forget, just because it's not new, that America's been doing some amazing stuff with, for example, providing funding for anti-retroviral drugs to cope with people who've got HIV and AIDS in Africa. And so there is stuff that America could be proud of. But I'm afraid that in this kind of uh, this conversation we've been having today about a world that is changing, where kind of that Russia and China are forming this sort of values-based, kind of grimly values-based alliance against the Western rules-based order against America, the idea that American democracy is a sham, the idea that American human rights is a sham, that global argument about who has the right to lecture who is very, very much alive and well in Africa. And you see, Vice President Harris, the problem she had was that in this country that's passing this reprehensible anti-gay rights law, um, to defend the values that are important to Americans, she came across and was accused of lecturing Africans. And China is delighted with that kind of scene, because its game is that it doesn't lecture anyone, its money comes without conditions, it doesn't worry about human rights, it doesn't worry about local corruption, it just is there to build a road for you, to give you what your people need, which is infrastructure and economic development. And that cold, hard kind of message is, I'm afraid, very, very appealing uh, in a continent like Africa, you're seeing elsewhere, Latin America, the global south, where people are sick and tired, as they see it, of being lectured by America when Americans might feel that they're just defending their values. Nancy, how big of a priority are these relationships in African nations for the U.S. right now? I think they're growing. We saw the Africa Summit in December where the U.S. pledged $55 billion um, in support over the coming years for for the continent. The problem is that money needs congressional support and it hasn't been um, paid out at a pace that I think the uh, member states would like to see. Um, so we're seeing an, a, a push to do more. I think the challenge is that China and Russia both have a huge advantage in addition to the points that um, David raised earlier is that um, – 
Throughout the trip, we saw um, that as the, the vice president was pushing for a policy of sort of renewed friendship, China sort of lurked in the background of her trip. She landed in Zambia at an airport that had been developed by the Chinese. When she spoke to leaders, they said, we can be friends with both of you. That there is no area, it seems, where ch- where the U.S. can sort of be the superseding relationship, but rather um, ha- will be behind China, which is the continent's largest two-way trading partner, 250 billion dollars in business in 2021. And so how does the U.S. sort of comfortably sit in a position where it is behind China in terms of investment and engagement um, with the continent? And I would also add that we've even seen in, um, in Europe more investment by the U.S. So I think there's a feeling of catch-up. I think there's by the U.S. I think there's a more um, investment in the relationship, but I don't think they can get to a place where it is um, seen as um, invested as some of its rivals. Well, in the final minute we have, I would love to hear from each of you a story you've been following this week or perhaps a story coming down the line we should keep an eye on. Nancy, I'll come to you first. This week, the Wall Street Journal reported that an internal State Department cable in July 2021 warned of an imminent cobble collapse. Tell us what happened. Well, that cable, it's called the dissent cable, and it's a channel for which um, diplomats who disagree can voice their concerns safely. This was, remember, one month before the fall. And the Hill is asking to see that document because they see it as key to sort of understanding what the administration did know, what it didn't know, in the run-up to one of the most consequential foreign policy actions um, by the Biden administration. The State Department said it doesn't want to release it because to do so would sort of violate the the uh, terms around the dissent cable. But I think it really speaks to how much Congress and the American public are seeking clarity and answers on what happened in those um, those really haunting uh, final weeks of a 20-year war. With us, Nancy Youssef, a national security correspondent for The Wall Street Journal, David Rennie, the Beijing bureau chief for The Economist and co-host of the podcast Drum Tower, and Dan Kurtzvalen, editor of Foreign Affairs and author of The China Mission, George Marshall's Unfinished War, 1945 to 1947. Nancy, David, Dan, as always, thank you. Hoy me fui caminando por las calles amigas, las calles amigas de mi ciudad. Todos se dan vuelta para mirarme, para mirarme con curiosidad. Mexican television icon Chabelo passed away this week. The children's comic, singer, and television presenter worked in entertainment for almost 70 years. Born Javier Lopez in Chicago in 1932, as a young adult, he studied medicine and worked part-time for Televisa, where he worked odd jobs. It wasn't long before he found his calling and his artistic name, Chibello, which roughly translates to young boy. As an adult and even as a senior, Lopez made appearances on television and at events in short overalls and outfits that resembled children's. He spoke in a squeaky, childlike voice, staying loyal to the character that launched him to fame. Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador took to Twitter to pay tribute to Lopez, saying he'll never forget his oldest son waking up to watch the actor more than 40 years ago. Chabelo was 88. Curiosidad. 
Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior supervising producer. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand with help from Matthew Simonson. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A. This advertisement comes from our paid sponsor, Fundrise. High interest rates mean that real estate assets are available at a discount compared to previous valuations. The Fundrise flagship fund plans to expand its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. Add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio at fundrise.com NPR. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund before investing. Read the prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Stearns & Foster. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted for irresistible comfort with indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for your most comfortable sleep. Learn more at StearnsAndFoster.com. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit Podcast from NPR.